and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quit me. I remember, you know, there is no quit me and I won't you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson. This is the Intentional Performers Podcast, where we chat with all kinds of people to try to figure out how are they setting their mind for performance and how are they doing that in an intentional manner. And today's guest talks about intention throughout this conversation. She has developed frameworks, uh, programs, systems, processes to help her athletes be the best that they can be. Her name is Chris Herman. She's the head softball coach and an assistant athletic director at Williams College. For those of you that don't know about Williams College, they are one of the best academic institutions, but they also are super successful at the Division three level. And Coach will talk about how she will recruit not just students, not just athletes, but really people that are striving for greatness in both the classroom and on the softball field. She has over 30 years of coaching experience. So she went to her undergrad at Tufts University, which is a similar type of high academic institution at the Division three level. She played softball there. They actually started the program while she was there. Uh, and then she transitioned right into coaching after she graduated. So she coached at Tufts for 17 years. And then she transitioned over to Williams, where she's now in her 15th year. So she has a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience. And she jokingly will say, oh, well, if you're in it for long enough, then I guess you'll have some success. But the truth of the matter is a lot of her success is not by accident. It's extremely intentional. And that intention has led to over 700 wins in softball, four World Series appearances, and lots of other accolades that Coach is pretty humble about. She's also not just a coach. So she's the founder of Team Impact, which she's extremely proud of. And and we'll get into that conversation and, and learn more about what they do at Team Impact, which is a nonprofit. They do amazing work with universities all over the country. Um, and she also has an, a business operation called One Softball that tries to develop a community to help parents, high school athletes, and develop character so that softball players can be better humans and better softball players, and so that that experience, the youth softball experience, is a better experience for the athletes, the parents, the coaches, and the college coaches who are recruiting these people. 
She also is the owner of Go Team Coaching, and she's going to talk a lot about her writing, her writing over the years, and she's a blogger. She loves to post content and share content with other coaches, with really anyone who's interested in softball or sports in general, uh, and she also loves to serve other coaches and try to help them. She'll talk a lot about that in this conversation. Coach is a really thoughtful person, really intentional, and she will share some of the tools and techniques that she's developed over the years to help develop her athletes to be the best that they can be. And she's become very clear about what her goals are, what her vision is, and what she wants to accomplish from a culture standpoint in the organization that she's in currently. So this is a gem of a conversation. It's an awesome talk. If you're into sports, you're going to love this because it's all about culture. It's all about how do you develop people. Uh, But if you're not in sports, there's also all kinds of nuggets that you can use in your job, in your workforce, and really in your life as you try to optimize your ability to perform in all aspects of life. So I know you're going to love this conversation. And when you do, if you could write a comment on iTunes, we have had a ton of comments there and we really appreciate those that have already written and if you haven't done so yet please go over there and just write us a review uh, a comment on the podcast if you like this show please share it on your social media facebook twitter instagram wherever it is your social feel free to follow me on twitter at brian levinson and the show on instagram is at intentional uh, underscore performers so we really appreciate everyone that's sharing the show we are growing And that's really a testament to you all as you continue to share this with friends, family, whoever you think might be interested in these conversations, please help us spread the word. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Chris Herman. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. We were connected by a mutual friend who also works at Williams, uh, Thomas. Uh, he he went to grad school with me. Thomas is a gem of a human being, and I would imagine a gem of a coach. Uh, so shout out to Thomas for connecting the two of us. I'm very grateful for his friendship, and I just want to thank him for connecting the two of us. But I want to jump right in with you because you have you have a lot of experience coaching. Uh, you've seen multiple sports, and I would imagine generations of athletes. So can you just talk a little bit about your coaching philosophy? Has it changed over the years? Uh, How do you think about coaching and do you have a general philosophy that you follow? Sure. Well, I've been coaching a long time, um, which means I'm old, but also means I started when I was really young. So, you know, for anybody just maturing and having experience changes a lot of things that we do, whether it's front of mind philosophy or just sort of how we operate. So I certainly changed a ton, I think, getting better. And one of the reasons that I'm uh, still coaching, I think, whereas a lot of people have decided not to coach after 30 years is because I really do feel like I'm still just getting better at it. So that's really exciting. You know, the philosophy, um, I wouldn't say, um, I mean, I do have a lot of stuff written down on paper, but that hasn't um, always been the case. So I think one of the things that came with my maturing process is like having some more stuff written down on paper in my philosophy. So, you know, I'm trying to help grow kids, um, I think is what I say, sort of the short version. And that involves them becoming more self-aware. I think that's a huge piece of being good on a team as well is sort of understanding who you are and how you interact with the world, whether the world is one teammate in a drill or a whole team or a coach or a, a class or, or your family or what have you. Um, so that's sort of what I'm after. Uh, my philosophy is to try to help them find the answers themselves and to work together as a group to figure out what are the ways we can get better um, with, a, you know, with an aim of um, 
trying to win the game. The scoreboard is on. We are trying to win the game, but that's um, an outcome that we think can come from having a great process. Self-awareness is a, is a big word, and I'm seeing it more and more, which is actually a pretty cool thing. But I think a lot of athletes will tell me all the time, hey, I don't want to think. Uh, I don't want to think. And I think I think that sometimes they think that self-awareness is going to cause them to think more when in the batter's box. And I know a lot of baseball players or softball players will tell me, gosh, I just want to be dumb. Like, I just wish I didn't think at all and I was just dumb. How do you unpack all that and, and how do you think about self-awareness as it relates to thinking? I think that I hear that a lot. I just wish I was dumb, right? But I've been coaching quote unquote smart kids my whole career and I, I call BS on that. I think that's a, I think that's a cop out. Um, we, I, I agree. I know what they're saying. Um, uh, but I think there's, they, they're certainly, regardless of your intellectual capacity, there's a way to be dumb in the batter's box. Um, so that is one thing we talk about a lot. We work on, you know, how do you, how are you different in a drill setting than you might be in a full practice setting than you want to be in a game? Um, and I think it's okay to say you're going to be different in terms of your preparation and like mental attention to detail, right? So you may think about your swing for example when you're working on the tee but when you get in the box uh, um, so I don't I, I don't like it uh, when they say that as a after the fact but before the fact great I, I want you to be dumb too let's figure out what does dumb look like what does dumb not look like um, what are the things you should do and not do and then we work toward that so it's something we do um, and, and none of that is simple right or it's simple but it's not easy yeah and you've coached at Williams and Tufts, so certainly some of the smartest kids that we have, I should put quote-unquote smart kids as I do my air quotes um, because we have a way of labeling people based on certain things. And I've met very smart kids at um, schools that aren't deemed to be smart. So, um, sure. but, but yeah, as I think about it, like when you think about the greatest athletes of all time, they're always smart. Uh, there's always a brilliance to them and it's not just their physical brilliance. And, but I think a lot of times athletes to get good have to lose some of that overthinking and let themselves sort of be in that moment. And sometimes, especially our school system teaches them to practice, 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 make sure you know, it right. Make sure you're perfect, you know, get it right. Get a hundred on this test. And I see it at a lot of the great academic institutions that I work with where they're taking that perfectionism or that fear of failure and then they're bleeding it into their performance. And that's where the challenges arise. Can you riff on that for me a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I see that. And I use the air quotes um, absolutely 100 percent of the time. Um, and um, I think that's really important. But the kids that, that we have at places like Williams and Tufts, where I've been coaching, absolutely are that kid where, you know, you don't get to come to a place like this unless you've gotten uh, proverbially 100 on every single test your whole career and you've been pushed and uh, rewarded by those things. So we do have to un unpack that for sure. Um, and, but, but again, just by, you know, shining the light on things that, you know, as I like to say, when you turn on the lights, the boogeyman goes away. So when you turn on the lights to the fact that perfectionism might be holding you back, then we try to work on what we can do on the other side of that. Not just, I think sometimes it's easy for somebody to just start, stop and start with, yeah, my perfectionism is getting in my way. And that's obviously not okay because we want to get to the place where we're having good performances. Um, 
And the way we do that is, as I said, first of all, we just recognize it. And then we work on what are the pieces. And, and you'll hear me say this. What does it look like? What does it not look like over and over? I do that with everything we've got. So, you know, how does your perfectionism hold you back? Well, it doesn't allow me to recover after I have a less than perfect performance and my brain gets in my way. Um, so we work on everything from, you know, the usual you know, work on your self-talk, take deep breaths, be intentional about everything you do. Um, and then uh, we just assess a lot. So we just go back and be like, okay, how was I feeling during that at bat? What did I do going into that at bat? Um, where's the connection? Um, and be okay with like, I, you know, that didn't work out, but I was great when I got in there. My mental game was great. So just a lot of recognition and experience. Um, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, what they call random practice in the business, but just go out, let's play the game in, in not necessarily the whole game, but play the game in pieces so that you have experiences in practice that uh, mimic as much as possible what's going to happen in a game. Um, you know, you don't get one more, for example, if you're doing an at-bat in a practice. It's not like, hey, try again. No, if you're out, you're out, and let's work on how we recover from that. Since you've been in the game for a while, um, is that something you've seen that kids – um, that you're getting today are maybe way more skilled and more developed with their technique, um, but maybe aren't as uh, adept at handling just the nuances that come with uh, a game and, and sort of the ability to adapt and adjust and, and improvise? Uh, for sure. Um, and it's been well documented. You know, the literature these days is talking about that a lot. Kids don't play in the yard anymore, all that kind of stuff. I see that for sure. And the biggest challenge from a coaching perspective is knowing who really has the talent and who's just been coached to the top of their game. Um, and we want kids to have a lot of upside, right? I want, first of all, it's more fun as a coach to be able to come in and help somebody get better. Um, and I know we can always help people get better on some level, but for sure, I see kids who um, may be in this, uh, as I use the word overcoached, right? So they can they, they're good when they're working to the test, uh, but aren't, but can't improvise as much because they haven't had that experience, both in the, the free play, you know, they don't play in the yard so much anymore, and in um, youth uh, sports in general where the coaches are telling them, do three of these, do four of these, uh, we're going to do 10 of these together, and then stretch and go home. So I think kids haven't had the opportunity to um, experiment. And that's something we, we try to do here. I mean, we're playing in college, but let's experiment. And it's also a heck of a lot more fun. Well, and, and from a recruiting standpoint, you bring up like the idea of potential, right? And you get these kids for four years and uh, maybe five, if they get injured, whatever could happen. But, um, you know, this notion of, we want to help them develop and, and, and that matters to me because that's goes back to your philosophy of wanting to grow and improve, um, but also empower. And so when, when you're looking at kids, are you looking for more technique or are you looking for kids when you're watching them that already have that sort of um, environment or they, they've been exposed to um, being empowered and thinking on their own? Like, and just take me, put your recruiting hat on. Like, what are you looking for? Because four years is a long time, but it's also a short time. So uh, how do you think about that as a recruiter? Yeah, I would say four years is much more a short time than it is a long time, but depending on the kid's investment and wanting to get, you know, to buy into that process. Um, as a recruiter at the field, it's really, really challenging. Um, so at the field or on a video, I'm looking for athleticism. I'm looking for really nitty gritty footwork. 
Um, you know, how do they move? Um, and that's about it. I mean, first offensively, there's a few more things about a swing, but you know, you can watch the best in the game in baseball and softball. And there's lots of different ways to, to hit home runs or to have good swings. Right. So it's, there's not a cookie cutter there. Um, much more important piece of our recruiting is talking to kids on the phone, um, is getting, digging into some of their behavioral interviewing techniques and asking them some crazy questions and, um, trying to figure out two things. One is what's their, you know, what's their excitement about growing and do they think about their, the fact that upside is really exciting to them or are they saying, Hey, here I am, you know, I'm really good. You should want me. Um, and none of those things are like terrible. Uh, we want kids who are good, but also, you know, are they interested in the process of digging into these things? Are they interested in having me, peppering them with questions nonstop because uh, it won't be fun if they're not because that's the way that we operate here. So we're really trying to get them to get an inside look at what the developmental process will be like once they're here. And just like in a game, right, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, but are you interested in diving into the process or not? So much more um, impactful piece of our recruiting is done away from the field. So there's certainly the growth mindset is woven into a lot of the stuff that you've talked about. Uh, for those that don't know, you know, the book Mindset is, is a great read. Uh, Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford. Um, so people can dive into that you know, in more detail. I don't think we need to cover it. But what are some other qualities or adjectives that you look for uh, in, an, in an athlete, uh, maybe from a character standpoint? If you're looking at their behavior, what are some things you're looking for besides like they want to get better and they want to improve? Is there anything else that you've found uh, that fits what you're looking for in, in your culture? Yeah, for sure. I think um, on the team side, sort of being empathetic, right, having an idea that other people matter um, and really, really being excited about being on a team that works together and has both in it um, an environment, which I, I describe as sort of the current situation and a culture, which is more long term, that um, involves like working together. So kids, uh, I ask them a lot about their current team situations. I ask them about their family, about their classes, about their coaches, all those kind of things. Um, and I think that's one of the, the biggest ways. So that empathy or understanding of how others work. Um, uh, curiosity and creativity, I think, kind of go together for me. So like sort of asking the questions like, I don't know, let's find out um, is exciting. So somebody who's interested in and in figuring out how much better they can get both as players and as people. We talk about a lot of non-athletic stuff in our program as well. Um, and I encourage other coaches to do the same. Can I interrupt um, you? Because I'm, I'm sure. curious. <laughs> uh, Good. There you go. I like that. You Gold said style. something, environment and culture, uh, and you really mm -hmm. separate those two. Can you, can you give me a little more detail on how you think about that? Sure. Actually, uh, uh, I had a conversation actually with Thomas Adelsteins and your, your, uh, connection as well about this. Um, and I really like the word culture. Um, to me, it goes both wide and deep. Um, but, um, lately I've been hearing a lot of people talk about, well, really, let's talk about the environment on the current team. Um, which I, which I get, but, um, that has much more to do with, in my mind, how the players interact with each other and what does the 2018 team look like in this example. And it is different from years past. And I really celebrate that as well. So I think there's that's sort of the levels, right? The culture is the bedrock. What is um, your program all about? I think the coach drives those things. Um, 
much more than the current team of players, although they're certainly involved um, and committed to that culture. Uh, but then there's the next layer up of the environment, like what is this team going to be like? What are we going to value the most? What does this group of kids think they need in order to be the most successful of the of the whole, you know, gamut of potential skills and character stuff that we're talking about. What do they think is most important? Um, and then, of course, day to day or month to month or game to game, there's all the things that come into play. But that's how I look at those. And I, I do think that is important. Um, we don't bring kids in here to say, this is the only thing you should care about. We bring kids in to say, here's some things that we know are really, really important. We want you to care about these things. And what else do you care about? Um, because that's how we'll create the environment, which is sort of this team. It's so interesting. So I was talking to a college athlete the other day and, uh, he was a transfer and he's coming in and he's one of the better athletes on the team. And he said, like, I'm trying to change the culture here. And I thought about it. I'm like, man, like, that's a tough thing to say when you're transferring in to a group, whether they're winning or losing or whatever, like those people might've been there for three years and have worked hard. And I wonder if, if he could shift it to like, all right, well, maybe I can just shift the environment today. Like maybe I can bring some positivity to, maybe I can bring some hope. Uh, maybe I can, maybe there's one thing I can do for the environment today rather than changing a culture. And I think culture, and you sort of hinted at this, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please let me know. I think it gets thrown around a lot and I'm not sure how much people typically really focus on it. I think they like to say, well, we've got a great culture here. But then when you really go into the culture and you sort of take the wrapper off the candy, it's it's stale. And um, so I like the word environment. I think that's something that I want to think a little more about. Um, you know, I, I talk about, you know, thermometer versus thermostat, right? And that's mm -hmm. something that people have said for years, it's certainly not my line, but uh, a thermometer, you know, goes up and down depending on what the weather is doing. Um, whereas a thermostat, you set the temperature and, and that's the temperature. And I think of the thermostat being a culture like, hey, these are our values. Um, this is what we care about. Um, and I think typically values are embedded and we have to sort of um, believe in those values. But you spoke about like progression and that the way I heard it from an environment standpoint is like, let's not be so set in our ways that we're not progressing based on what our environment calls for today and empowering your kids to say, yeah, this is our culture, but this is your environment and your environment changes throughout the course of a year. Am I, am I sort of unpacking that in a logical way? Yeah, no, I think you've, you're, you've hit it. And to that athlete you're talking to, I would say, yeah, go for it. Come on in and change the environment on the team. Um, and, but, um, you know, I think you, you really have hit it. And the environment can, it's not just a direct line, right? Like, it's not like going from, like, bad to better to better to best and that at some future date we're going to be perfect, right? It's, it is who are we right now? What does this look like? What does this need? And, and some of the things that a team might value might be the same things environmentally that a team valued five or six years ago. Um, but last year, there was something that was more important, right, based on personalities, based on um, goals, based on talent, based on um, but really just more, more based on the kids that are there and what do they, they value. But, but the standards, um, and the value, the core values, right? The central things that are part of the culture, um, I don't think ever change. Have your values changed specifically as a coach? Uh, when you first got into this, uh, you know, you coach softball, you coach volleyball, uh, have your values changed? Or as you look back and when you first started coaching, 
you know, and, and you can even give us a little more of the background as far as how you got started with this. Um, but have you, how have your values shifted or, or maybe they've stayed the same? Yeah, I think that I, I don't think that they've changed at the core that much. Uh, certainly um, at the beginning of my career, they were not clear as, as clear as they are now. They weren't on paper. Uh, they weren't really well defined like they are now. But I think that the things that I value um, and that our team, our program values, which are pretty close to the same things, which are right, like just general like hard work. Um, and we define that. Um, communication is really important to me. I'm a talker. Uh, I like to get things out. Let's, let's uh, you know, decide if there's a problem here, let's fix it. Um, and then enthusiasm, like just loving the game. Those are really my three central values. And then all of those in a team framework. Um, and I think those have remained the same. Um, you know, I love the game and playing the game and coaching as much as I ever did. That certainly hasn't changed that enthusiasm piece. I also have a lot more fun when I'm around other people who are having fun. So we try to keep that in play. Um, and then communication, um, I think it's something I've always valued. I'm a lot better at it than I used to be um, in terms of having it be productive. Um, but I, no, I, I don't think my values have have changed that much. Um, I certainly learned a lot, um, but um, I, I, the central stuff is the central stuff. And then the standards and the behavioral stuff have been more uh, clarified as we went along to make it, I think, easier for the players. Uh, one thought, and then I'm going to put it back to you with the question. So I think people often don't realize that, no, your values are your values. Um, right. And I think what often happens are we prioritize values differently based on the environment. So we might value security more if we know that our job might be taken from us. Uh, and in your profession, I mean, like so many coaches value security because the sport world is just kind of crazy and your job can be gone tomorrow. Um, and it's super competitive. And, you know, especially at the division one level where it's big dollars, it's big business. Um, and so I've been around a lot of coaches where security might be a more important value to them than let's say, uh, enthusiasm, uh, even though they might value enthusiasm more, what they're in right now, they have to value security. And then it leads to like, um, you know, across, you know, across wiring, like their, their, their wires get crossed, their values start to diminish and then they don't have the clarity like you talked about to do what they need to do. Um, and then my, so you can riff on that as well. But the question I had was you've talked a lot about writing things down and how you've done that more and more as you've gone on. Um, so I'm curious if you're, when did that start for you? When did you start writing things down? And how has that impacted you? And I'm asking you a lot of questions. And maybe a third is, you know, thinking about those coaches whose values might be written down somewhere, but they're not living and breathing those values because of whatever situation they're in um, and their values might become diminished. I know I just gave you a lot to think about. Yeah. See if I can remember. I think to the last point, I think there's uh, both sides of that coin happen. Some people have things written down that are, like t-shirt values, as I call them, right, or hashtags. Um, they don't really do the second and third pieces. You know, as I've said a couple times already, almost literally every piece of paper I have is sort of what's the thing and let's define it and then let's give examples of what it looks like and what it doesn't look like in practice. Wait, wait, because say that again because I think that's that's really clear. And you, we talked about this before and I, it was one of the things I wrote down after talking to you is 
give it, give it, give that to me again because I think it, it's very clear. It's very simple, but a lot of people don't do that. So give that to me again. Yeah, I think it is the central thing. So, you know, whether it's a core value or a, what a, a practice should be like, literally like column A is what's the thing, you know, so maybe the thing is a great practice or uh, the way the locker room should look or something like that, <laughs> or it could be a core value. And then column B is what does this look like? Like bullet point examples of what does a great practice look like would be like people are moving, it's fun, where um, people are getting reps, they're they're sweating, they're smiling. What a lot it could be anything, um, just pretty simple stuff. And then the column C is what does it not look like? So what are some examples of uh, what a uh, a good practice doesn't look like? And I, I fully recognize that's terrible grammar, but um, that's the way we use it. What does what does this thing not look like? Um, so you know, in that example, it doesn't look like kids are standing around. It doesn't look like kids are complaining or coaches are complaining or so really just really bullet point examples. And, and um, we do that from everything from our core values to our the tools that we use, right? So it's pretty incestuous, kind of goes round and round, but we always want to really get down to it. So um, then we can say, hey, are we doing those things? And if we're doing those things, is it working? Are those the right things? Um, and if we're not doing those things, does it mean that we don't really care about that thing and we should take it off the list or should we improve our system? So, um, but yeah, it's all written down. There's probably, um, there's a lot of words on paper and one of the challenges for me is to not just hand out or post on a bulletin board, uh, you know, this list of stuff, but to get kids to understand what those are and to add to those things and to start to speak that language themselves. So that's that's what I do. Um, and I do think a lot of people have T-shirt values that they they change every year. Right. They're like, OK, what are we going to care about this year? And um you know, I, I, I do like the golden retriever, like head cocked, like that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so I really encourage people to, to write them down and be willing to cross things off. Like I thought I cared about that, but you know what? The evidence shows I don't, I don't really care about that. So I'm going to take it off the list and I don't have to feel badly about myself. You mentioned like enthusiasm. And so enthusiasm, people would say, oh, well, that's an intangible. You can't, you can't evaluate it. How do you judge it? How do you, how do you score it? And what you're doing is you're creating a, a, a self-reflection process, which is like, all right, the thing is enthusiasm. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it doesn't look like. And now let's make sure that we are all on the, all on the same page that we value enthusiasm and then we value this process of enthusiasm. Oh, and by the way, we don't value when you're doing this, which is, I don't know what the antonym for enthusiasm is, is, uh, I don't know. What is it like? Well, I think it's not really the antonym. It's it's examples of what enthusiasm doesn't look like, which is why it's bad grammar. Well, and it's interesting you say that because I literally have lines on my paper that are underlining because it's bad grammar. But basically, what it doesn't look like, right? So I think I think that's interesting. And look, I I, I don't get it twisted. I've been around coaches enough. It's hard. Like you guys are. If you look at like a business, you, a business has an HR department right? The HR department is involved in interviewing and making sure that this person fits their culture and make sure that they're right for the job and make sure that they're competent and then figures out their salary and all this stuff. All right. So that's the HR department. All right. Head, head coach, maybe some assistant coaches, they have to be an HR department. 
Uh, and by the way, HR departments also do all kinds of other stuff, which uh, coaches have to do. All right, so that, but that's recruiting. All right, now we're doing that. Now we also have to be um, in the finance department because you have to deal with budgets and dealing with travel and all this other stuff. Okay, that's another thing. Then you have to manage and um, you know, you have to actually deal with relationships and you have to actually make sure you're a cohesive unit and coach up and empower and you have to do that. All right, that's one thing. Now you have to do strategy. So, and I could go on and on, but my point is that coaching is hard and I think coaches often get into one of those and they can become really good at them, but to be good at all of them is really, really difficult. So how do you manage the different hats that you wear? Uh, and how do you stay clear on making sure that you, Chris, are doing your job to the best of your ability? Yeah, there's a lot to it for sure. Uh, and I want to say at, in my job here at Williams, I have an amazing uh, amount of support and I'm really fortunate that I don't really ever feel like I'm on an island. Um, so um, that's a that's a big point in my favor. So a lot of those uh, mechanical things uh, um, around uh, budgets and travel and those kind of things are taken care of by somebody else, which I'm really lucky to have. But um, I think that I manage all those things by having lots of things on paper. Um, and, you know, taking the time to think about the best way to get something done before you have to do it allows you to just then pull out that piece of paper and say, okay, this needs to get done. Here are the steps. I've already thought about it. Um, and to me, that's the the most important thing is uh, when I talk to coaches and talk to myself as this proverbial 10 minutes a day, um, thinking about how working, you know, um, on your job instead of in your job um, is really, really valuable. So, um, and I uh, spend, I have a lot of fun um, training or growing assistant coaches as well and giving them opportunities to, to do some of this stuff. But the same thing goes is right. If I think about, okay, I have to do a travel plan or a practice plan, like what are the steps, right? And when should I do it? Then I can just sort of go to that document and, and do it. Um, it's almost over oversimplified, but um, and and then blocking out time and there's a lot of productivity, you know, tools or systems that people do various ways. Um, I, I have admitted to myself that I don't get a lot of work done in the office because I have a great open door. Um, hopefully, kids will stop in, other coaches will stop in. We have a, a really great ecosystem of in athletics in my job. Um, and so I don't try to do like uh, work here, like uh, anything meaningful. So I have other places that I go and times that I do that kind of thing. But that's something I've thought about in advance and I block my calendar. And um, but once I've done that system, then I can just it can self perpetuate. And, and I and I look at it. Um, I have what I call dashboards, um, which is you know, checklists and things like that. And I'm not really a, it's kind of sounding like, um, uh, you know, this uh, sort of a, a, a person who's really organized and has, um, you know, really, really detailed systems. Uh, I, I'm not naturally that way. So I have to create these things. And um, then every week for sure and daily, I literally use our, my assessment system, which we developed here. I encourage everybody to develop. Ours is red, yellow, green, um, and those are really well-defined. Other people might want to use some number system or what have you, but 
we use that and I really always know where I stand. That's not always, I don't always stand in a great place. I want to be honest about that. But um, I always know where what needs work. Chris, you just gave me like 10 intentional things that you do. Blacking yeah. out the calendar, going to another space, red, yellow, green. Um, they're all awesome. So props to you. You're trying to make the subjective more objective. And you're trying to not just be emotionally driven uh, in your decision making. But what I thought about as you were talking was the corporate world. And a lot of people that are listening to this are in the corporate world. So they're, they'll listen to it on their way to the office or they'll listen to it at their office. And you, you look at how offices were set up in the last 10, 15 years, very open spaces, trying to really get people to connect with each other. And there's a lot of research now that suggests that that really can harm productivity, um, especially for people that are in strategy and need to do deep work and, and really find quiet time to write. I loved how you said, I need to work on on my job rather than always be in my job. And and by the way, I think in sports, that's a massive issue because you're you're so performance heavy. Like your your job is so tied to performance. So you're always in it, in it, in it. And you often don't take, when I say you, I mean coaches. Uh, I'll, I'll just label all of the coaches, uh, but uh, I'll generalize all coaches. But coaches often forget to take a step back to think about, all right, how am I strategizing? How am I thinking about my philosophy? What are my values? I think because they're so in it that that's really hard to do. So, but I go back to the corporate space. They're now realizing that that open concept, which you described as your open door, is great for building relationships, cultivating cohesion, you know, building trust, which are massively important to team productivity. But softball is a really good example of this because you can be the most cohesive unit on the planet. But when you step in the batter's box, no one's passing you the ball and telling you, trying to set you up. No one is going to get an assist in your sport like they will in soccer or basketball. Or, you know, there's no quarterback throwing it to the wide receiver and the wide receiver just needs to do his job. You need to be in the batter's box and it's you versus the pitcher. And you need to take care of yourself. And, you know, I use the, the analogy of putting your oxygen mask on, right? Like it, when the airplane's going down, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first before you try to put others on. Like you need to have your mask flowing. So I think about the office and I think about the way that you've created intention and space for yourself to work on the thing rather than in the thing. And to me, it's a massive reminder for all of us that we need to create space for ourselves to work on ourselves, And that is what I think often gets lost in really ultra competitive environments because we're so in it. And by the way, there is value in being, but there's also value in becoming. And to me, you want to blend both of those, which is I want to be when I'm in the box, but I also want to become maybe when I'm in the cage, or maybe I want to become when I'm doing front toss, or maybe I want to become when I'm trying a new slider or a curveball or a fastball, whatever the thing is, there's time for both. And often I think people are just being, and by the way, if you're just being all the time, if you're just in the moment all the time, that's not good either. Like there needs to be time for reflection. There needs to be time to think about the past. There needs to be time to visualize about the future. Um, so I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on how I'm seeing this and how I'm thinking about it. 
I mean, I, I agree with all of those things. I mean, obviously, you're, you're the intentional guy, right? That's that's what we're here to talk about is being intentional. And I think that's so, so important. Um, and, you know, uh, something we we're talking about a moment ago with my kids, and I even use this in recruiting, is I want the players to feel like they can just show up and work on either being or becoming, but sort of do what they need to do, which sometimes is depending on what, what, what they're working on. Sometimes they have to get it done right then. Sometimes they're trying to drill things, but they don't have to really think, right? We talked about this at the very beginning. We're trying to think less so they can just sort of be um, because they've done the work as well as I've done the work beforehand, right? So if you've got all the the real or proverbial checklists and made time to think about the, the future when you're in the future you can just you can just do it right you can just do where you are where you are so that's a little uh I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the word is for what i was just saying it's a little out there but um to be able to be um in the moment i think is over i think it's an overused phrase right now for sure but i was like just be in the moment and i agree with you that you have to reflect and you have to think about where you're going in order to be in the moment, because the moment I just mentioned is now in the past. So um, uh, but we do try to give kids the tools also to say in advance, sort of, OK, if this set of drills goes well, what do I think it's going to feel like? And then did it feel that way? Did I want it to feel that way? Was, was my aim the right one? Um, and somewhere along that line of consideration, you're going to come to a sweet spot where like, yeah, that was it. And you can't necessarily predict, right? You can set goals or set aims for the future. And then, but it's always, hey, I'm going to wait and see what happens. And I'm not, I'm going to try hard to be non-judgmental about the future. Um, a little out there, I feel like that, that riff. But No, it, it, uh, where I went to in my head is like growth mindset, which we talked about earlier. All right, great concept, really valuable. But there's also time to be fixed. Like when I'm in the box, like, no, I'm good. I, I, I don't need to get better right now. I need to compete, right? And, and like grit, which has become such a big word. And I value grit. But there's also a time to quit. So one of my concerns is that we are, we're just telling people to be gritty or to just have a growth mindset and it lacks context and it lacks nuance and when matters, like when we're going to do things and teaching our kids to be self-aware enough to assess the situation and then say, all right, this is what it calls and calls for. And I think of like when you have a lefty batter and there's a shift and we're going to shift everyone to the right. And that is an intentional act that the team is doing based on what the situation is. And uh, so that to me is, is become very clear. And that's why I, I believe in blending ideas and blending concepts. And um, I think we all need to look in the mirror and think about like, when are we going to do these things? Like, when do we really need to be gritty? And, and I value grit. I mean, I competitiveness, like, for an athlete, if you don't have that, like it's going to be really, really hard for you to be successful. Um, so grit is really useful, but there's also a time for quit. Growth mindset, really useful, but there's also a time to be fixed and believe in this is what I bring to the table. And we talked about being versus becoming, and I think you need both. And um, for me, being intentional is the notion of what does this call for and what am I intentionally going to do and not mindlessly going to do just because – 
it's been told me. And by the way, a routine is not mindless. So people see routines and they're like, oh, you're mindless. No, a routine is one of the most intentional acts you can do before you step in the batter's box. Uh, taking a breath or you know, taking a couple practice swings or whatever you want to do before you step in the box is extremely intentional. Uh, so I'm not saying take out the frameworks or the systems or the processes. Uh, certainly build those in, but be intentional with how you're building those in. Um, I want to go back a, a little bit to understand why you started writing, because that seems to be a thing that has been a game changer for you as a coach and a game changer for, for your players and, and your team. Uh, is there anything that sparked that for you or was it a gradual uh, pull and a gradual shift that happened over time? Uh, well, uh, both. <laughs> um, after coaching for 25 years, really, in 2012-ish, uh, there's a side story. I was involved in building a nonprofit that has to do with sports, but not with coaching called Team Impact. And it has to do with uh, kids in the pediatric medical community. But regardless. Uh, no, 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 was... Chris, Chris, go into it. <laughs> Sorry. Like, All right. So could... Team Impact is uh, it's uh, sort of one of the lights of my life. So um, we Team Impact uh, matches kids in various medical with various medical challenges with college sports teams. Um, we could we could talk about this for a long time, but uh, we have almost 1,300 kids around the country matched with a team. So the kid would be like on the team. Um, sort of one of the most well-known is a, a boy named Larry uh, who's matched with the Michigan football team. And I uh, got to go to the bowl game last year and all this kind of stuff. But the kid is allowed, he's a member of the team. So gets he or she gets a jersey and some of the gear and gets to go in the locker room and go to contests and um, really gets all the rights and benefits of being on a team and also responsibilities. And obviously we could talk forever about. Wait, but how did it, how did it come to be? Give me a right, little. So I'm getting there. So the, yeah, I, so, sorry to cut you off. Yep. No, that's okay. Um, so anyway, that, that concept is amazing. Uh, something has been around for a long time. We didn't invent, but myself and a few friends in uh, really 2010, 2011 said, this is a, this is a something that we should grow. So, um, working alongside, um, some, some, friends who had built businesses before and uh, which is a lot like building a program and uh, we just set about to build this it's a nonprofit, but to build this company um, the growth has been amazing but at that time um, a good friend of mine Dan Walsh says like you know we were uh, just bouncing things off each other what's the best way to do this how should we interact with the families or the medical community what are the important things to have in place what kind of documents do we need what are the things we really value and just back and forth, really every single day building this business. Um, and there came a moment where I would say, I, I said out loud, wow, this is really, this is really great stuff. I should do more of this in my coaching life. And um, his shock and dismay was like, there was probably some expletives in there. It was like, you, wait a minute, you don't do this? Like, this is like the central thing around building things. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I don't do that. And I, don't, I think a lot of coaches don't do that. I think they kind of show up and uh, think about their technical expertise and think about getting the right kids in line and um, sort of go for it, you know, work hard and, um, you know, don't ask questions. <laughs> and um, he uh, um, assured me that that was uh, ridiculous. And um, I said about um, building my program the same way we had built um, team impact. So it's a pretty direct line between that guy who's my coach. Uh, I, I consider him my coach, uh, and um, and and putting this stuff on paper. So that was sort of the beginning of the checklists and and bullet points and uh, wow, what do I want this to look like? Stuff. 
Um, and that sort of evolved as I talked to other coaches. I realized he was right or I was right. Yeah, coaches generally don't do this. Um, and it was game changer for me. And as I said, I'd already been coaching for 25 years. So, um, you know, I, I always joke, it was like I had my head in my hand on my desk, you know, sort of pounding on, pounding on the table being like, what, how did I not know this? It's so, so simple. Um, so I started doing it and started sharing it. And every coach I talked to has had the same reaction, like, wow, this is a game changer. I want to do more of this. So I started uh, sharing it. Awesome. And when you say sharing it, give me a little more context to that. Yeah. So I, I really just started writing, um, you know, sort of my quiet time is usually in the morning, um, started, you know, grab a notebook. I, I always have a notebook uh, now and sort of uh, writing what I was thinking about, uh, what some systems might be improving on the processes that I already had. You know, none of it is ever done. Um, and then, uh, you know, my short blog is pr pretty um, low key. Um, and I haven't um, really worked to, to market my stuff, but go team coaching is what I what we what I call it. And um, a lot of really great coaches here at Williams who are super interested in getting better. Um, we have over 20 head coaches here and many, many assistants. We talk about this stuff all the time. So um, just getting after thinking about what I'm thinking and really writing for myself, but knowing that that other people are valuing it as well. Very cool. So, so you're now spreading a lot of the tools, the frameworks, the systems that you're putting into place, and and the blog or is is it's the ten minutes of intention that you're doing. Is that sort of you're sharing those those ten minutes of of quiet time, space, and reflection? Is that what the blog is, or is it more in depth than that? Yeah, it's actually really short. Um, each each blog entry is really short. I just kind of get after one concept, something that I've read or heard or thinking about, and kind of expand on it and. Um, it, yeah, it's it's quite simple. I don't go into depth with a lot of things. Although outside of the blog, I do share a lot of the tools and processes with with whomever uh, wants to hear about it. I work with assistant coaches a bunch. Uh, head coaches have a lot of complaints about assistant coaches um, at, at at times, or a lot of um, regrets is too strong a word, but they lament that they don't do a better job of 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 growing their assistant coaches. That's something I'm super passionate about. Um, especially as, as you referenced earlier, for a lot of reasons, coaches are leaving sports. Uh, women, especially, um, I think are leaving, um, not just because it's hard, but um, because it becomes challenging for a lot of different ways. So I'd love to stem that tide. And um, uh, also with athletics directors, and um, as we enter an era where many athletics directors or leaders in athletics departments have not coached before, um, I think it's a really, uh, it's a little bit scary for me. I'd really wish that they had a more pr perspective on coaching. So uh, I'm thinking about how I can help that as well. Yeah. So you also serve in, in the athletic department as well. So you wear, let me just count the, the hats here, just so we're very clear. <laughs> um, you're head coach uh, of softball. You have this go team um, sort of co go team coaching concept. You have, uh, Team Impact, which is a nonprofit which does amazing work all across uh, the country in our university system. And then you're also in the athletic department. Um, how do you juggle all of that? Uh, and we haven't even, like, I don't know what goes on away from that in your human personal life, um, if there's a time for that. But I think a lot of people use that word balance and struggle with that word balance. So um, how do you think about balance and how do you, how do you juggle all of those hats? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a, probably a few more big chunks in there as well. Um, but I, I don't, 
I mean, I'm, I'm all for balance, but I don't love the word balance. I try to be where my feet are. Um, something I also talk to our kids about when they have a lot going on academically, especially in other interests is uh, if you can be where your feet are, um, you know, take that intentional breath um, and sort of do what you're doing where you are as best you can. So, uh, so I, I don't believe in multitasking. I don't think it's a thing. Um, uh, people who, who say, you know, sort of brag about being great multitaskers. I, I don't, I don't buy it. So um, we just kind of do one thing at a time. And some of those things have evolved where I don't have to do a lot day to day team impact, for example. Um, I do very little day to day. Um, uh, so that, those are, that's the way I do it. Um, I still play a lot of golf. I, you know, I have, I have time for some other things. Um, I don't know if we, we talked about one softball.com, which is a big resource for youth softball players, coaches, and, and parents, which is really, uh, exciting, a huge undertaking that I'm also, um, closely involved with. Um, so, uh, you know, being in having been intentional about a lot of the systems and framework stuff that we're really here to talk about has enabled me to do many of these other things. Um, and um, there's 24 hours in the day and uh, I live in a small town where I walk to work and I, you know, I save a lot of time doing some of those other things. So some of it I've just set myself up, created the conditions where I can do a lot of different things. Where So you, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, I you are involved with all of these different endeavors. Where does that come from? Is it, is it something in your childhood? Is it something in, uh, that happened in your life that, uh, let you go for those things and, and go for them fearlessly? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's always fearless, right. For any of us, but, um, sure. I, I always, uh, one of my favorite sayings was, or I always reference a saying that my dad said forever my whole life, which was error on the side of doing, so if there's something to be done or not done, do it and see what happens. Um, you know, my my parents, I think, are great role models. They uh, both grew up in uh, suburban New York City, Westchester County. And um, as young parents, when I was little, decided um, they were just going to not do that anymore and move to rural Vermont. Um, so... There's a farm there that I, my mom still lives there. And um, I essentially grew up uh, a couple different places in a small town in rural Vermont. Um, and my dad decided, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad uh, quit his job in the city and, and created this job for himself in Vermont where um, he only worked, you know, basically in the winter. So it was an October to May job and he could be on his little farm in the summer, which was super fun. And, um, you know, that just works. So certainly I saw that firsthand, you know, when you're a kid, you're not really noting what you see, but you're seeing it. And so that meant we went out and did a lot of things. We, we erred on the side of doing, hopefully it wasn't always an error, but we did a lot of things. Um, some of them were crazy, you know, um, I mean, not crazy, but like seemingly crazy, like just raising pigs and cows and the adults had no idea what they're doing. And the kids were kids and, but hiking and traveling and, you know, education was super valued in my family, but education could have been, you know, on a boat for a week somewhere instead of being in fifth grade or something like that. So it uh, wasn't necessarily, um, well, certainly wasn't teach to the test. It was, you know, yes, expected to do well and academics mattered, but you're going to learn a lot looking at the stars or going for a hike and that kind of stuff. So I guess that's embedded in me is do more. I love the idea of error on the side of doing because the saying is error on the side of caution. 
Um, so it's a play on words and basically saying like, no, don't err on the side of caution, err on the side of doing. Um, so that, that's so cool. Um, where did athletics come from? Uh, was that something that you were doing in Westchester before you moved to Vermont? Is that something that became a love when you were up there? Is later on, like how did athletics play a role in your, in your upbringing? Yeah, I think that one of the great benefits of being, you know, old, um, is that you're not million- old for the record like <laughs> okay Chris, so Chris so, is so, acting like she's like some 90 year old person okay like, she's having been around a long time she's not old she's coached for a while but you said from the beginning you're like i started coaching at a young age as well so so let's just nip that in the bud right right, right. now all right but but go on with your story back in the <laughs> 1930s and, and we'll, we'll go <laughs> yeah. from there uh yeah after the dust bowl uh so uh but but really, having you know, being a kid in the seventies, uh, it was very different than being a kid today, right? There wasn't private lessons everywhere. It wasn't tutoring and extra this and extra that. I mean, it did a lot of things, um, you know, and it was okay to not do them especially well, like play the clarinet or um, you know, play sports, and it didn't matter. Um, in my family, or even I think to many people, if you were like really good at that, and we're gonna like. You know, there wasn't like I'm going to get a scholarship. That wasn't the thinking, especially for girls. So as a young girl, actually, I um, this didn't really I didn't notice that know it at the time, but did end up shaping me, I think, quite a bit um, was that in the early 70s, I was a nine year old and wanted to play baseball just because that was what sort of everybody was doing. And they wouldn't let me or a couple of other young girls in my town because we were girls. Um, And, you know, I didn't really get that at all and more importantly my my mom was like she had not been super political at all but at that point she was like that sounds silly you know this is nine-year-old girl it's not like wait what um so there became a little battle in our montpelier vermont there was a battle like there was battles in towns all over the country um and um you know we ended up uh battling for a number of months and and winning this battle and so i was able to play Farm League, which was pre-Little League baseball. Um, I played football um, for one season. um, And the coach's uh, response to to having a girl, and not especially talented girl, was like, okay, you're going to be a wide receiver. Go way over there next to the sideline. Run as far as you can. And when the whistle blows, run back. And uh, I don't know I touched the ball the whole season, but uh, that was fun. Um, so I just did that. That's what, that's what we did. That's what sort of everybody was doing. Um, and that's where that came from. And then, When you say everybody, though, not were, were all the girls doing that with you, or was, was it unique to you? Uh, I, I, certainly not all the girls. There was a cohort, a small cohort of girls that were – we're, we're doing that. But it wasn't something I noticed. It wasn't politicized, you know, at the kitchen table at all. It was, um, you know, or at least I don't remember that. Uh, it certainly wasn't something that I, my ears were privy to this big, terrible injustice, right? It was, I just did it. That's what we did. But yeah, uh, and, you know, we skied and skated and we did a lot of winter stuff there too. And that was sort of everybody. There wasn't the, the exclusion of girls in that world. Got it. And softball, uh, and I know you also coach volleyball, so I'm kind of curious how that worked because yeah. I don't, I don't know too many people that coach softball and volleyball, so I want to find out about that. Um, but where did those come in? When did they enter sure. your life? High school. Um, so I went to, a, I moved um, towns, or you know, went to a different school system um, for ninth grade, and in um, at that school. Um, 
you know, and still now in small schools, they don't have a huge variety of sports, right? So at that time, um, if you were an athlete, you played field hockey. Uh, well, if you're an athlete, but not a runner. So if you're a runner, you ran cross country and then did track um, on a grass track. Um, if you were not a runner, then you played field hockey in the fall, basketball in the winter, and softball in the spring. That's just what your options were. So um, the basketball team was really, really good. I was not, so I actually skied in the winter, but I played field hockey in the, in the fall, which I had never heard of before the first day of practice, um, but was really fun. And then uh, I played softball in the spring. So I certainly didn't think I was a big uh, softball um, star or baseball star at, any, at all. Um, I don't believe I played, um, you know, Babe Ruth or 13, 14, 15 baseball. And, and I didn't play that in seventh and eighth grade. So it's just what you did um, in a really small town. And we, the team was really great. Um, I had um, a couple of really great coaches in high school um, that I really enjoyed. Mona Garone was a field hockey and basketball coach, even though I didn't play basketball. And Paul Munn was my softball coach. And I just, we had a great time. We got better and we won a lot of games. So winning definitely mattered then. Um, when I went to college, though, I didn't, I didn't, uh, that wasn't a big factor in, in what I wanted to do in college. I went to Tufts University in Boston. Um, we ended up starting a varsity softball team when I was a junior. Um, I take no credit for that, um, doing the hard, the political work of that, but I did reap the benefits. And I played for two years and then the, uh, when I graduated, they, there was no assistant coach. So I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I might go to law school or, um, I was a political science major, but really I raised my hand and said, I'd like to be the assistant coach. You need help to the head coach. He agreed. I was cheap and they hired me. And the next year the head coach left, ironically, he left Tufts to come to Williams. Um, he so, was a football so, coach. So just so I could interject. So you're at, you just graduated from a great university um, and now you're going to take a job where I'm assuming you're not making a lot of money compared to what your classmates are making in their entry level positions. Why? Yeah, I just don't, I, I, I didn't care. I, I never cared. I loved sports. It sounded really, uh, I knew that the, and I don't even want to overstate. It certainly wasn't front of my mind. Like I can help. It was more like, this will be fun. Can I put this together? And I did, you know, I was the equipment person. I did a bunch of other stuff, but certainly my opening salary was $2,500 as a head coach the following year. Um, so yeah, there was, that wasn't it, but I, I didn't care. I think that's just ingrained in me. I, I never cared. And maybe it comes from move to Vermont and, and, you know, so take a, I'm sure a big pay cut at that point. Um, and, um, you know, after that, after that first job of my father's, you know, he did consulting, all around the world and the country because he could basically pick his own projects. And that's, that was the important part as well as the interesting. Uh, so uh, auto uh, autonomy is something that you have exactly. valued. Exactly. So I think that's where it came from. And then, uh, yeah, so that just didn't never cross my mind. I mean, I, I didn't have any money, but I, I didn't care. Um, and then the following year I became the head coach for the same reason. I mean, things, I mean, literally, and I, 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 Rocky Carzo gave me a chance as the athletics director at Tufts, but I know that his MO was not going to cost us a lot of money, probably won't get us in trouble, doesn't matter if she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, because uh, on one level, because it's quote-unquote, I use the air quotes again here, girls, girl sports, um, 
And that was the nature of the beast in the mid 80s or just getting started to have to care about that. So as you've seen things change and and college sports become more and more of a business and look, there is now big money in women's softball. Um, uh, certainly at the division one level, uh, look, there's just, there's just big money in, in college sports. Um, why not take that leap? So you've been at Williams for a long time. You've built a very successful program. Um, what, what's, why, why stay at Williams? I mean, let me count the ways is my short answer. Um, you know, I often say I have the best job in America, and I haven't. I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. It's uh, super special. Um, I get to do a lot of other things is one of the things. Um, not having to deal with the scholarship situation is a huge plus in my mind. Um, I have a lot of friends who coach at that level. Um, you know, behind closed doors, they would admit my job is a lot better than theirs as well. Um, and I get to work with amazing people, both the students and the other people who work at a place like this. Uh, we're fortunate, you know, as an institution, Williams is wealthy. Um, and so there's lots of resources to do the things I want to do, uh, which are pretty, they don't actually take a lot of resources, the things that I want to do. But um, yeah, I just have, uh, uh, but most importantly, the people I work with, the kids and the other uh, coaches, but especially the kids, they really want to see if they can be great. Um, in a lot of different areas of their life. It's the same thing we're talking about with, with, you know, the things they value the same kind of things that I value. And, um, you know, I had a recruit tell me uh, on the phone last night, as a matter of fact, that I want to go to a place where I can be a student first and an athlete second. And I told her that's actually not Williams is not for you because we don't put athletics second. We figure out a way to put them both first. Mm. So it's not like, Sports is not important here. Sports is really important here. Williams wins all the big athletic awards, right? We're national champions up and down my hall here in my office and uh, people having amazing, amazing success um, in all areas. And it's just intriguing to me. I I'm interested in digging deep into what they do and figuring that out. It's the and instead of the or, right? So right. I think a lot of people look at decision-making as an or situation, and there's pretty cool books and science around the value of and and adding and to any decision that you're making. Um, and I think a lot of times you're right. People get tunnel vision and think it's it's this or that. It's I make a lot of money or I'm home for my family. And your dad somehow figured out the and and was intentional with I'm going to move to Vermont and I'm still going to work and do jobs um, and I'm going to take my kids and have them be around pigs. Like there's <laughs> just a lot of ands there. And I think sure. the ands matter. And and a lot of times we only think about the oars and um, that's when we get tunnel vision. And that's often where I think we make decisions of regret. Uh, I think decisions of regret often happens when they're or. And that's not to say that, look, there are pro athletes who have to be on the road for, you know, a hundred days a year or 80 days a year. And like, there are just, they can't do both. Or there are CEOs whose job might require them to travel the world. Or there are head basketball coaches or football coaches or softball coaches at the division one level that have to be on the road. You have to be on the road a lot. Um, so there's certainly times where it can't always be and, but I think we should always be searching for the and. Um, I want to start winding down this conversation. First of all, it's, it's been a lot of fun. But the one last thing that I really want to get to is you've built championship teams. Um, what is it that makes those teams special? Is there some link or there's something 
commonality as you think about the teams that you've been involved with at the championship level that make them great. Uh, and, and I would love to just hear your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I think there are. I mean, I don't want to understate the importance of talent. Okay, so that's matters, right? You have to have that. That's a baseline. Um, and maybe to go from, you know, the really great to, to winning the big trophy every time, it that often comes down to physical, uh, you know, one player, somebody's ability to make a play. So I think sometimes we undersell that, stu- that stuff. But, but you don't get to that level where you have the opportunity, I think, to win the championship without having – um, a really great understanding of what's important to this, to that team or to this group so that we can um, trust each other, right? Communicate well um, and respect each other's efforts and, and just be able to allow everybody to sort of be them be- their best self at any given point in time. And it comes from a lot of the things we've talked about, right? My, all these intentional um, pieces of the puzzle go into trying to uh, let people just have their best performance on game day um, and get rid of some of the, the baggage. Um, so having people who are bought into that, you know, there's another level below that, right? Some people don't think, don't agree with me and, and trying to um, convince them is not worth it. So trying to get the, the right people um, on the train, one of the sort of metaphors that I use is the, the train, right? So, you know, John Gordon says, get the right people on the bus. And, and I, I agree with many of the things he talks about, but we like to talk about it as a train, but the tracks are laid, right? Like, yes, you need a conductor. Yes, you need somebody shoveling the coal, but the tracks are laid already. And there's, there's all you're just trying to do is keep yourself on the track. That doesn't actually take a lot of effort. Um, you can just steer. Um, and the tracks are the, the culture uh, and the environment to talk about what we talked about earlier, but um, getting people who are interested in seeing how good we can get based upon those uh, in those conditions is I think what it's all about. Um, and um, a lot of the processes go back to, you know, recruiting and finding that the right kind of talent, which, which also certainly does matter. Love it. Let's end there, but I want to give you uh, the last word here. I would love to hear you just, promote all these different things that you're interested in. Give us the links to the websites. Uh, If you're on social media, where can we find you on social media? Uh, But you obviously have your hands in a lot of different projects. So just throw out their their, uh, web domains and and just give us an idea of all the things that you're involved with. And hopefully everybody will go check them out. I know a lot of coaches listen to this uh, and a lot of you know, people that are involved with teams and athletics. So um, hopefully we can help you out a little bit. So just promote whatever it is that you want to promote open, open floor, open platform. Great. Well, there's a, there's a lot of fun things. I guess there's four big ones. So, so my like little uh, musings is go team coaching.com is my, my blog. That's fun. I love to have more people get involved there and sort of share that kind of stuff. Um, Team impact is, uh, as I said, um, related to sports and teams, and it's tremendous, and that URL is goteamimpact.org. Um, really great website. Our professional staff has done an amazing job with that and um, has uh, been really important. Um, a new-ish project for me is One Softball, so it's O-N-E softball, all one word, dot com, and there were... Um, posting resources. We've actually interviewed, you know, 70 of the top college coaches in the country have, have agreed to go on camera with us. And we have lots of video um, for them talking about 
um, uh, character development, technical development, the path to college recruiting. So really trying to help the youth softball community, which I think youth sports uh, needs a lot of help. And so that's coming directly from the college coaches. Um, Williams.edu, Williams College is an amazing place. Uh, the athletics website you can find there. It's Eve Sports, E-P-H Sports. Dot Williams. Dot edu. Uh, we'll talk about what an eaf is maybe uh, some other time, but it looks like a purple cow. Never another interesting thing. Uh, and those are really the four big places. Uh, all those are also on Twitter, um, GT3 um, coaching, and um, eaf softball coach are my two Twitter handles. And uh, you can find William Softball on Facebook and Instagram as well. Chris, that might be the longest. Most diverse list. You can of cut out any of those websites. We need, we need no, to cut out. But. We'll leave them in there. It's great. And of course, everyone can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. I love Twitter. Um, always posting stuff there. And then on Instagram, we have uh, intentional uh, underscore performers. And then we also have our website, intentionalperformers.com. And for everybody that's listening, I really appreciate it. Chris, uh, love the way you think about things, the way you think about coaching, it's so intentional. And there's a reason why after talking to Thomas, he was like, Hey, you got to connect with Chris. So I'm just really grateful for your time. Uh, I'm grateful for everything you're doing for the sports world. Um, I live in the sport ecosystem. So to see the work you're doing on the nonprofit side, to see the work you're doing uh, with high school kids and, 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 parents uh and then to see the work you're doing with coaches i mean you're checking a lot of boxes and and you're serving a lot of people and then of course the work that you're doing at williams um is is also inspiring so i appreciate you sharing your journey with us and also sharing all the systems and processes and frameworks uh for how you work and i know everybody that listens to this will be better off as a result of you giving your time so i appreciate the generosity and best of luck uh, to you and the team this year. And if there's ever anything I can do to help you, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Been a lot of fun. Appreciate your work as well. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Taking the time to think about the best way to get something done before you have to do it allows you to just then pull out that piece of paper and say, okay, this needs to get done. Here are the steps. I've already thought about it. Um, and to me, that's the, the most important thing is uh, when I talk to coaches and talk to myself as this proverbial 10 minutes a day, um, thinking about how working you know, um, on your job instead of in your job um, is really, really valuable. <laughs>